I think all the institutions are bad enough at this point that you have to just be creative and trying to find independence in some way, you know. If you're in a media institution with very few exceptions, maybe none, you are, it's not just being edited by someone else, but you are like kind of under pressure, right? From, from people above you all the time. It does influence what you say. It's not even that now that I have independence, I'm really saying anything like any more outrageous than I would have ever said in the past. But I just remember many times in the past where things that I didn't even say were like kind of inserted in and or they would just take out certain things or, you know, even even just the pressure of something like people know that they can fire you if you have a boss. Right. Whereas if you don't have a boss and they can't get you fired, oftentimes they don't even really bother attacking you because they know it'll be fruitless. It's maybe a little bit different in the art world, but broadly under the same umbrella of institutional failure, of elite capture of institutions. For me, uh, well, you are certainly very specifically targeted. And I could see people writing mean letters to your boss uh, all the time. <laughs> but but for me, it was more like uh, kind of pushed to the margins, which I think is the, the diffuse way that it happens in the art world, especially during the last few years. If you're not on the front lines of that culture war, um, you are not very useful to those interests. Mm. So I just decided to grip the third rail and to to never let go of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that leads you in a, a strange direction. Maybe the institutions are not recoverable. And so people are making exits to Substack in your case, Patreon in my case. Is there a process of rebundling? Is there a process of forming new institutions that comes out of this? Or do we all just become atomized, individual precarious islands? Well, it's hard to say, right? But it and and the what will actually happen will probably be something that i'm not going to actually predict accurately you know because there is a sort of when these things happen it's a surprise so for for example in the case of something like substack i mean substack was around for years you know and it never occurred to me to use it but i think what happened was there was a shift in politics which then meant a kind of a these very establishment figures were sort of back in the center of politics so yeah. A certain moment was over, and and so the the endless like shuffling of musical chairs was not what people expected, and so it's in those moments that something tends to change. And do you, do you mean Biden? Do you mean the the last yeah, election round? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I kind of think like that that particular election was a moment where all the kind of energies of a whole generation that had been building up since maybe Occupy Wall Street were supposed to come to fruition, you know, and then they didn't. Yeah. And it was like, okay, that generation is almost 40 now. So (laughs) if they're not, like, this is it pretty much, you know? (laughs) Um, I'm 34, just for the record. (laughs) And so, you know, I think there was a sense of like, this is like the end of an era in some ways, you know? And so when something like that happens, there is this like quick shuffling of musical chairs and, and some people sort of, you know, so, so like even, for example, I suspect that a lot of the people who were, made famous, I guess, in those days, like since the Occupy Wall Street days, who had public commentary sort of careers and things like that, writers, they suddenly became less relevant or something. And so then like a little bit of room opens up for something else. There ha- there was a sense before that for a while, a building sense that people keep getting fired from newspapers. Nobody can have any confidence that they're 
superiors or boss, their editor will support them in any way. And because there is such intense competition, everyone's just dying for a chance to push a competitor out. And so um, this like little escape route was kind of perfect because you you get rid of the boss problem. I mean, ultimately, I suppose you have a boss in the sense that someone owns Substack, but you know, you are like literally just posting directly on there yourself. You know, and that 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 opportunity just opened up, and lots of people were m- making that move at the same time, and so it just worked out really well for me. I mean, especially because in somebody like my in in my position, there really isn't a publication for someone like me. You know what I mean? Like it's right. not really. I'm always going to be sort of ill fitting in every every publication. So, so it's perfect. Also, in that sense, you know, it's also perfect when. I think when you're going through a period where you're, you have to kind of go back to the drawing board a little bit. And like when I was younger, I would have written in a much more polemical way with much greater confidence kind of, but when you see political projects fail and you see kind of things turn out in way, such weird ways that you couldn't possibly have foreseen, it just kind of humbles you a little bit. Well, it certainly it did in my case. So I find like when you're writing just for yourself, you have the freedom to write things that are open-ended, right? Whereas an editor will always try to make you put forward like a really clean argument that they can put into a headline, you know? And they'll always try to make you do, not always, but they'll often try to make you put tack on a conclusion. One thing I really like doing, because I believe that sometimes extreme pessimism can be a good thing, a generative thing, and you sometimes have to just sit with the possibility that there's no upside, there's no silver lining or anything. I often like to just write a totally pessimist, the totally pessimistic case, you know, <laughs> and just leave it there like that. And I always found that when I was writing for editors, they'd always say, oh, I like this, but you should put something at the end about how, you know, basically everything's going to be okay. <laughs> right. Or they, you, know, right. you have to show like what your alternative would be or something like that. You know, they, they like that, that bit at the end, you know, so that happens all the time. Whereas I think a mature audience can and should be able to just sit with the possibility that there isn't like a nice clean ending there, you know? And uh, I think I, I really, really like things just being exploratory because that's sort of the position I'm in right now, you know. If I had the political certainty I had 10 years ago, I'd be writing the way I did 10 years ago. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I think um let me try and let me try and summarize this to make sure that I'm on the same page. Let's let's say there's a period where there's an enthusiasm behind Sanders and there's uh this sense that you can run an insurgent campaign within the Democratic Party and you're analogizing this to the ability of legacy media to contain alternative voices or, or voices of dissent, both of those things kind of deflate at the same time. Um, yes. They represent some very similar, if not identical interests in that people who work at the platform then join the Biden administration now. Like that's yes. that's literally already happened. Yeah, So so we're at this really funny moment where there's uh, a sense of returning to the center but also it's totally unsustainable. Even the people who are at the center in power are stricken with the sense that it's unsustainable and something is going to, there's going to be some Jenga block that falls loose. Uh, We Mm -hmm. don't yet know what that is. I feel it as well because 
uh, I've essentially in this time, I've spent the last, let's say, six months defending institutions against the encroachment of platforms. But here I am, like, literally, I left my job at the institution to become a content producer on the platforms. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's some there's some new chapter that we're moving into. Um, I want to I want to ask you, though, in the last, let's say, I've been doing this publicly since 2018. And I've become something of like a confidant for people who are in positions of media and uh, parts of the, the cultural sphere. I've had a lot of behind closed doors conversations where people privately confide in me that they read your work and they take your work very seriously. Although there is not, (laughs) it's not, it's not just a few. It's like, you are the first person who's mentioned in like all of these interactions and they kind of, (laughs) they say it and like, you won't be able to see me on the podcast, but they kind of like look around yeah. and it's like, <laughs> yeah. And I also read Angela's Substack. Um, so you were of course, like the first person I wanted to talk to as I enter this new chapter of looking at the fringe of political discourse. I wonder if that's been my experience. Like if I've had those interactions, you must've had something similar to it. Oh yeah. I've had people say stuff like that to me for a long time. Yeah, I, I also had some woman say to me recently, oh, I fell out with a friend over your book. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she wow. had a, or, or I think maybe, yeah, yeah. And and uh, I think it was actually two friends of hers fell out over my book or something like that. And I thought, God, that's sad. <laughs> wow. That's pretty sad. Like, it, it's like 150 pages or something. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I know. It's just, but I mean, that's just such a testament to, okay, but here's what's interesting though, right? Because you know, from researching radical online politics that the range of what is being said out there in anonymous internet world is so huge, right? It's like, right. Um, yeah, it's the absolute like furthest extreme in every direction you can imagine. And so what I'm saying is so, to me, sensible. So I don't see myself as being in any way out there on the fringes and yet in a strange way i i tend to attract more of this kind of reaction than even the most extreme stuff that's out there which is which is an interesting and puzzling thing and i don't know why that is but i suspect one of the reasons like i've noticed for example my um i see whenever i get a subscriber you know and i've noticed like the names coming in as subscribers are like really really big names you know Many of them are in in the elite institutions in some way or another, like in academia and things like that. And so that's kind of who's listening to me. So I suppose the reason that maybe people who are out there saying like really absurd, like knowingly absurd, like extreme stuff, they're not really speaking to the institutions. You know what I mean? Whereas the people in the institutions for some reason are reading me. Therefore, you're kind of that. There's a possibility that you will influence that those institutions. I don't know. I, that's my guess. Like, um, uh, and and also, I always try to. I think because a lot of the extreme politics online are the, the people doing it are very self-aware in their kind of exit from respectable thought and 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 so on, and they sort of have like a very you know, Nietzschean or whatever, like attitude to like morals, right? They, they, they reject the moral system, the moral fanaticism of our time, really. 
Whereas I always try, you should try to, you should be able to make what you're saying morally comprehensible. Sometimes I've said to people who are kind of out in the fringes, like, you know, they they often think that their ideas are so brilliant, but people just haven't grasped them yet. And I always say, I think people do understand your ideas. It's just that they're not morally comprehensible. People can't see how anything that you're saying would ever be morally acceptable, even mm. to themselves, not just to society in general. And so I always try to make things like, uh, you know, to, to include a moral argument as well, you know. And there aren't that many people kind of doing both of those things at once, like trying to make an intellectual and a moral argument and also kind of pushing boundaries a little bit, you know. The, people just go go all in and they just push all the boundaries and just completely reject the entire moral system like of the rest of society at the same time, which, you know, has always had its place. Like, uh, you know, artists have often done that and and so on. But it's interesting when you do things a little differently, you do get a very different reaction, you know. It's, it's different now, too, in a, a society that has mass media intentionally alienating an audience, like the experience of walking into a museum that mm -hmm. um, this stuff is not accessible to you because uh, you don't deserve it or, or something like that. It's Actually, a, can, I, can I ask you a question? Because sure, I, sure. I, I'm really fascinated by, okay, so, so with Substack and with various other things, kind of media platforms, um, I think they have found a way to get around some of the restrictions in, in writing you know, journalism, essay writing, opinion writing, that kind of thing. But academia is the next thing that I'm really fascinated by because, you know, I was just speaking to a friend recently who teaches in a really elite institution in France, sort of a never ending. He's like got a never ending adjunct kind of thing going on, you know, where they, they just never allow him to move up or get any like stability <laughs> or better pay or anything like that. Right. And this kind of goes on forever. But, you know, he was looking at some of the jobs that were there and he, he said, he said when he looked at the curriculum and it was just like, you know, that was being forced on like uh, him as a teacher, he thought, you know, this is so bad that, you know, it might even be worse if I did get this job, you know, because then I would have to, you know, abuse my students with this like <laughs> horrible course. And, uh, and, and so, yeah. And, and he put it in a funny way. He just said like, yeah, academia is just in ruins now, you know, <laughs> and that's what it is. It's in ruins. And, and the idea, I mean, I'm all for going, trying to go into the institution and fight and like make it better and stuff like that. But in the humanities and stuff, I mean, I don't know. I just don't see that you it would be such a task. I mean, to to move them an inch, it would be like a life's work, you know. And it, right. I think it would be a wasted life's work, honestly, at this point. Um, so I'm very interested to see who like who will come up with a way around this, and you know how will it work? Because the way that the Substack thing worked, like lots of people tried things like that, right? It is essentially just blogging. But what happened was basically they did a big push right at a time when loads of people were getting fired. And basically they they got a lot of people to jump at the same time. And so then kind of all the energy moved to one place. And, and so it just kind of worked. Things fell into place in that way. People just made the calculation that like, 
okay, either I have been fired from a newspaper or whatever, a publication, or I'm probably going to get fired from one. So I may as well jump before I'm pushed. I think Matt Taibbi, for example, might have jumped first. I don't think he was sacked or anything like that. And so the everything just kind of aligned to make that happen. So I'm wondering, how could the equivalent happen in academia? Because to go back to your, I think your first question... Of course, I don't want to be utopian like about the idea that you can just go and be on an island on your own, like independent from <clears throat> all these institutions and um, that that's like a real way of fixing it. However, if there is a cascading effect, right, where all the interesting people are outside the institutions, that is too demoralizing. There will have to be some moment of of reckoning with that, you know. So, So what I'm wondering is how... Will there be an equivalent moment where you will end up in a situation where all the smart academics are outside of academia? Yeah, well, we may not be too far from it already. I think my specific experience in teaching art is that we are given a tremendous amount of um, latitude in the stuff that we teach, in that uh, I was able to literally design my own syllabus without oversight in one example. And for the other, I was probably, it was like 80, 20, 80 of mine and, and, and 20 of theirs. Um, I think the deciding factor though, is going to be like essentially higher education now works as this, this stamp or this pedigree that increases your viability in the labor market. If you have the degree, it doesn't matter what you learned or what job you were prepared for, but you do end up getting a higher wage. Mm. And I feel like specifically for MFA programs, like th those are on the decline in terms of enrollment even before the pandemic, because people realize that you just never recoup the expense. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that separates it out pretty quickly. So now, I mean, exclusively art has been trending towards this for many decades at this point, but it's the um, unpaid hobby of a very wealthy elite. And when you no longer recoup the cost of the education, um, this does have some type of a counterbalancing effect. So I feel like that's going to be the wedge that gets driven down where if it is, if it yields a higher quality of life, people will go to air conditioning repair school, then study the humanities. Mm. Uh, and that we may actually be on that path now. Mm. Um, I do feel though, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is this term, the clerisy that you've been using, I want to say in the past few months, uh, which has been a, a recurrent theme in your writing, because I feel like the humanities education, but also the, the co-optation of these really radical, impossible to realize activist demands, what those are most useful for is being brought into this, I'm not sure if it's a new class or, or what you would describe it as, maybe I'll let you choose how to describe it, but um, there is a pretty direct pipeline from uh, activist work and higher education into this uh, clerisy. Would you maybe define that term for the listeners who are unfamiliar with it? And then I have a few follow-up questions on the specifics of it, but maybe to familiarize everyone first. Yeah, I mean, just like the idea, I suppose it's a bit like Brahmin or or something like that. You know, every society has something like a priest class. Normally, you know, I think a much more healthy and stable society it's a lot smaller than the current one is. But, you know, I guess it's kind of people who whose role in society really is to establish and propagate and teach the, the morals of the society, I guess, and the ethics. And 
Um, you know, so for example, in one piece that I wrote about the, the clerisy, I wrote about the NGOs and how, yeah, how they have ballooned, you know, to such a degree. And, and there, there are now so many people working within them. And in many cases, um, you know, the, the number of people who are sort of in the full-time role of moral teaching in the society is now enormous. And, and academia has kind of been part of this pipeline where they actually train people to be in this class. Um, but it is like Brahmins or it is like a priest class in many ways. Um, and in many times in history in the past, you know, that priest class has become too big, too powerful, too abusive of its power. And, you know, a backlash does come eventually, uh, particularly, you know, the, when the kind of right to rule collapses. The construction of morality, specifically in the context of a nonprofit, feels like the job is to propagate a specific type of ideology. Hmm. Uh, and that happens to be the ideology that comes from, if you look at the donors, mostly finance capital. Hmm. Some of the numbers I've seen, 10% of the total number of people who are employed in NGOs in the U.S., one is tempted to imagine that that number is getting larger because it's getting more and more difficult to manage the expectations of a downwardly mobile developed nation. Mm. And so those two things are like one curve is chasing the other. That yeah. the worse the worse things get, the more priests that you need to yeah. um, keep people in line with uh, whether it's a moral principle or just accepted behavior or or whatever. Um, can I ask you though, what is the difference between the clerisy and um, the professional managerial class? Like, is there an overlap, or do you see them as two separate things? Um, there's an overlap, I suppose. Like, um, I, I, the, but the reason that I tend to say clerisy or something like that is that the 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 populist backlash is against a subset of the PMC, and that is the priest class. I think really. So it's not the uh, manager of the shop floor. It's the yeah. um, the person who tells society stories or something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. More more so a journalist than a, a manager. Yeah. 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 Well, we also just have less people to manage in today's American economy. Uh, yeah. Or, I mean, less shop floors, really. There are plenty of people to manage, but less shop yeah. floors to be managed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th I guess people, I guess there's a sense that that this group of people, basically that they have lost legitimacy because they become larger, more powerful, more intrusive, and also less legitimate because people can't see like what the benefit to society is of having them there, you know? So even like um, one piece I wrote about this on, on Substack, I made this kind of comparison to when there was a backlash against, say, like the clergy, like the Catholic clergy in Europe. It was kind of similar in a way, because it's not that the Catholic clergy were necessarily the most oppressive faction of society. It, it was more that they, just like the current one, they became too large, too intrusive, and people couldn't see the legitimacy of their role, you know, given how, how intrusive it was. Um, and, you know, they were, they were just skimming too much wealth for themselves while simultaneously kind of preaching like humility and all these kind of values to, to people who are suffering. So that like really undermined uh, their legitimacy. And also 
they also had a sort of a, a reactionary role or an anti, a, a backlash against sort of um, progress of enlightenment or whatever, you know, so and and I think, OK, it's funny, right, because when I wrote that, right, so I used all these terms in a really kind of like earnest way. Right. And some of my friends who are very skeptical of ideas of progress and the Enlightenment and things like that were saying, like, oh, I'm surprised, like, you know, I'm surprised like you sounded like, you know, Richard Dawkins or something. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, right, the way that I think it makes sense is that I do believe the technology is one of is, is like the biggest mover of of history really and if you are a non-productive elite that is actually getting in the way of truth and of things that allow society to actually reproduce itself in many ways like if you're if you're actually getting in the way of technological progress for example i do think the, the likelihood that you will be pushed out of the way is strong you know so if you were you're pissing off the poor because you are preaching humility while taking all of this money off of the top of your institution and you're like behaving in immoral ways while preaching to everyone then they're going to be angry with you um if you are stopping scientific development from happening then you know you're you know getting in the way of profit making actually really like like for example I have to believe that a lot of people in in like engineering and in tech and stuff like that are probably not happy about NGOs and people in the act in the kind of professional activist class saying like half your engineers have to be women or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. or maybe saying even, you know, we even see it with the vaccine stuff in some way. I mean, I'm not I'm not even going to get into that because <laughs> that is a, one of these things that people are very have very, very, very strong feelings about. But, you know, the fact that it was so difficult to simply get a truthful response on anything that when everything was so politicized, you know, it was literally endangering us all, basically the level of politicization. So all of these forces kind of come together and, and having this morally fanatical kind of teaching class, it becomes actually dangerous to society at some point. And, and the opportunity to topple them comes eventually, you know? Yes. Yes. I think there's, um, I think that right now we're watching competing definitions of human freedom and it's infuriating to those elites that are currently in control that some people might choose their definition of freedom is having a home and having, um, a dependable quality of life. Mm. Um, that, that drives them mad. And I mean, I feel at this point, really being in the weeds uh, for the past few years that's like the only real trajectory, the only escape hatch out of this whole thing is basically rebuilding the labor movement in um, socially conservative areas. Like you have to redraw the lines of politics in the United States, but that's a, that's a larger um, mm. thing. Um, let, let me table that for a second because um, I want to just echo something that you said earlier about technology moving history. And it's great to be in conversation with another enlightened leftist. Um, I'm <laughs> sure you're very unhappy to hear that description, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm only somewhat joking, but uh, someone who's inside the art world, when you talk uh, abstractly about these elites, um, I know some of them. Like I have billionaires in my phone and I would live on $25,000 a year. Like mm. that should not exist. 
it does exist in the art world in a very specific geo-specific and uh, era-specific few years um, where that was allowed to happen. I know the people who live in Bushwick, and basically their job is to be the mouthpiece of the people who live in the Hamptons. Mm. Um, and when you say, like, that those people are going to get removed, I think there's going to be a lot more of my experience where the benefits of staying in the system, holding the bag for the people who are profiting off of your work, like those rewards are actually so few. So mm -hmm. uh, I want to like hypothesize, you don't even need to hypothesize because it's literally factually real. Like <laughs> journalists who would make $35,000 a year and then would write the think pieces about why the Sanders constituency is class reductionist and, and all sorts of things. But I think, again, the pay and the upward mobility for those people, like this class, this clerisy may just dissolve itself in time. Hmm. Because some of those managers are going to get $100,000, but most of them, like 35 is the high end. Mm. And then when you're like, I'm 34 now, I'm calling you from um, my parents' house mm -hmm. in the spare room. Uh, I don't know anyone now who has a spare room. I don't know anyone my age who has a house. Mm. Uh, so I just wonder, like, that curve, it may not be possible to extrapolate it out any longer. Like the unsustainability is predicting a type of catastrophic crash. And the, the bookend to this thing, if I can finish this long uh, route that we're on here, is I guess superpower competition, where the rise of China is going to force certain changes in the way that the American economy is organized. And mm -hmm. let's say just a, a rough, let's even overestimate it. Let's say there's 20% of America that is employed in maintaining the current order, siphoning uh, a real value out of the economy. Like someone's going to need to tighten their belts. And I just wonder how much longer it can continue if there is no path for upward mobility of anyone who is in this, like as you described, clerical class. Mm -hmm. Does that... Yeah, no, there's so much there um, to talk about. But, you know, at the moment, I'm just reading Sally Rooney's most recent book. And I'm just thinking it's so funny because all millennials, well, millennials are probably the generation that were like, that believed in the most, that were the most disappointed in a sense. Like, <laughs> they, you know what I mean? They start off with the most like utopian idea of what life is going to be like, and they get the biggest uh, disappointment kind of at the end. And if, that's true of millennials probably in the West in general, but it's true a thousand times over for Irish millennials because we like moved sort of like 200 years in, in, in like 20 years or something in terms <laughs> of going from huge families, totally rural, you know, very religious, like all that stuff to just completely secular, childless, millennial, like cosmopolitan but totally insecure economically no potential of owning property you know all that stuff but when when we were say um starting out like say in our early 20s we just couldn't believe our luck basically like we really thought all that we we really thought that we were just going to be able to wander around Europe and be <laughs> have this like ideal cosmopolitan lifestyle because that was very much packaged and sold to us like I always think of early advertising for cell phones and you know and things like that and it would always be people just like living as digital nomads you know around you're talking about like Dublin becoming a tax haven yeah in this period yeah, yeah. 
So basically what happened is that in the late 90s, there had been a couple of of failed economic policies, like, you know, Ireland only got its independence in the early 20th century. So you then, and it had, it hadn't developed normally because it was a colony. So it really had just produced agricultural export. So it had to kind of build an economy from scratch. And that project was kind of faltering at various times, but, you know, did they did make some progress on it. But in the 90s, they had this idea, oh, screw that. We're just going to turn it into a tax haven. And so at first, of course, it's great, right? Because at first, all of these companies flood in all the European headquarters of all the big tech companies are based in Dublin and all this money is there. And suddenly there are jobs for young people, you know, and they're like, and well, the young people think they're like interesting jobs or fulfilling jobs or like high prestige jobs, you know, and all that stuff. Now, a lot of these companies are just basically brass plates, like they don't even employ anyone. So they're not even really, uh, they're not even really providing jobs, but some are. And you know, it's like, I suppose, like we kind of laugh at it today, but like the whole kind of way of life that was being envisioned by Google and all these companies, you know, where you have a really big network of friends and you travel and you have all this freedom and all that kind of stuff. Like, so we really did believe in that, like, and we really did think that that was going to be our lives, you know, and that we would be also better off than our parents as well as having all this tremendous freedom right and so it's funny now if you read uh, when i was reading sally rooney i was thinking like if sally rooney is miserable like what hope is there for the rest of us you know (laughs) and actually all these writers of my age group uh the kind of millennial writers from ireland uh, roisin kybert is another one she's really good and um there's a guy called Rob Doyle and another guy called Mark O'Connell who kind of wrote this book about transhumanism. And it's what they all have in common is basically, and I suppose me too, what they all had in common is like, uh, is that they ended up being incredibly disappointed by this, this thing being a lie basically. And none of it really working out very well. And so everyone in Sally Rooney's books are, you know, people, in that situation, right? Uh, Everyone they know has emigrated. They're still living with their parents or something like that. Nothing has really worked out. Um, And they have no, and then they, they, they start becoming very apocalyptic about the future, you know? So they're like obsessed with like, just like climate apocalypse and all these terrible things are about to happen. And of course, the the more terrible possibilities that none of, (laughs) none of them will happen. (laughs) You'll just still, you'll just, (laughs) you'll still be in the same situation in 10, 20 years because we don't actually know a way out because our, the plan that we had just didn't really work out. So, yeah, I think that if people can find a way out that is, and they can make it work economically, they will do it. And in fact, the institutions won't be able to stop it. Like if somebody can crack that, if somebody can find out a way to make it financially viable for people to be independent scholars and be able to live on that, then you know, just in the case of academia as an institution, I think that that it will be like an unstoppable exodus, basically, because nobody is happy in there. Even the people who, you know, got in earlier than our age group and have things relatively, you know, a cushier kind of situation, even they're miserable, actually, because they're always saying like, you know, I was speaking to one um uh, academic at an institution I was at when I was younger and and she was saying you know it's it's terrible because 
you know, the students are like, have this culture where they're in, well, some of them, obviously not all are like this, right? But there is the possibility that they will get you in trouble if you say something that they don't like. And so there's this like distrust there. And because of the way, like the competitiveness of the field, like there's like not very good rapport among people in the institutions and, and just all of these things happening, you know? So at the same time that the internet is like massively expanding what can be said and, and what can be thought and like creative expression and all these things, the institutions are, are like narrowing it down and down and down and down. So until you have no freedom of speech at all, really. So that that's really what I'm thinking, you know? So that's kind of what I was saying about like, what would the equivalent of Substack be? Substack is basically, you know, it's not perfect and, and, and all of that, but what it did is it just allowed a path out of the institutions for people. And the ultimate effect of that is a demoralizing one to the institutions themselves, because they can, if you're completely reliant on them, they can punish you for whatever being ideologically not like correct on something, but they can't punish you for just leaving. You know, they can't stop people leaving because of course they're so used to everyone like desperately competing to be in the institutions. Well, what happens if all of the interesting people just leave, you know? So, yeah, I think that does have to happen. And I think you're right too. I mean, sometimes with the, with the kind of comparison of priests and stuff like that, you can lose the distinction between those who are really benefiting from being a part of that class and those that are not. And, you know, also like, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with, um, with kind of wanting to be part of these institutions, right? Because I wanted to be part of them, right? And I think like- I did too. Yeah. I mean, like you want like big art institutions and you want like scholarship and you want like lots of books to be published and and all of these things like so i i it's always a danger you know in kind of critiquing these things to accidentally end up just sort of sounding like a philistine or something like you know or being kind of like um unnecessarily critical of things that are actually very understandable you know these should be the great institutions media too you know i mean we see right now how with all this vaccine stuff you know people can't get on the same page on anything and the reason is that people don't trust the institutions which is reasonable because the institutions have lost people's trust because of their bad behavior their unethical behavior for so many years but now it's like completely dysfunctional as a result But the thing is, that doesn't mean that the original purpose of a media is not valuable. Like if it actually was a truth-seeking institution, then it would be a great institution, you know? Yeah, well, there's there's so much. Um, I went to the Frick Collection uh, a week ago. Uh, Anyone who's not familiar, listeners on the podcast, um, Henry Clay Frick, wealthy steel industrialist, notorious for not allowing unionized workers in his mines. This is a extraordinarily wealthy and very cruel individual. He also happens to have one of the best art collections that's ever been accumulated in like the history of humanity. Like you can go and see the Rembrandt self-portrait. These are some of the greatest works that uh, society has ever produced. And the way I've been describing this conflict is that the great institutions of American society were uh, basically airdropped into the middle of metropolitan centers 
as a way of legitimizing the industrial class. Like th they all correspond to a very specific period um, of a new emergent uh, bourgeois class that is trying to, to make a claim to culture that does not, in most cases, have aristocratic roots. Um, and this is a way of their, uh, the new money competing with the old money. Um, mm -hmm. And what they did is like they would brutally exploit you, but then they drop a beautiful public library in the middle of your city and it would enrich everyone's lives. Or you'd get this extraordinary museum that was beautifully built, would be pride of the city. You could take your kids to it. You know it will be there. I mean, these paintings are hundreds of years old. Um, if I could ever afford to have children, I would plan to take them them there. But there's a sense of like we are part of something that is uh, durable and extends into the future. And then maybe as you you hinted at with the climate anxiety, this is really, I think, a placeholder, a very efficient anxiety, emotional placeholder for people's fear about the unsustainability of their own lives and the, own, the society that they're a part of. Mm. Um, but what I'm seeing now when we start to talk about these platforms is that there's never going to be a Bezos or a Musk or a Zuckerberg collection. Like, mm -hmm. there's not going to be another Frick. Um, that was a unique period. And this corresponds to the, the ideology of Silicon Valley, the sense that markets are self-legitimizing. And if this thing rises to the top of social media, then that is the freedom that this emergent techno-capitalist class is trying to facilitate versus what would be perceived as authoritarian top-down narratives of curators and editors and an institution that extends into the, the future, that this would constrain human freedom in, mm. in some way. But what I fear is that, one, it's still to be determined whether a sense of freedom and legitimacy can be achieved without the need for institutional narratives, for, for no one to nudge you from the, the top down or um, suggest the right reason for, for doing things. If you just have an infinite horizon of possibilities, what do people choose? Do they feel satisfied with those answers? What is the, like, maybe there is a necessary, like, managerial or clerical interest to guide people. Um, mm. My fear is that that is not actually achievable. And we've seen YouTube, for example as a platform is becoming more like a neoliberal institution in that the alternative narratives are being pruned away. So it's not necessarily clear to me that, like, how long is it before this happens to Substack? How long is it before this happens mm. to uh, Patreon? Like, is it ever possible to remove the process of legitimation from capital? Will they just erect their own new more ruthless institutions instead that's maybe like a a, a 10-year question that's not that's yeah, not the immediate no, that's, now that's entirely possible like that is absolutely possible these like platforms you know opened up possibilities for people who are already kind of being nudged out of institutions anyway mm -hmm. um and so in the short term they're great but no it's totally true i mean even if you think of something like you know it's like almost like a, a cliched historian thing to say the printing press, you know, was a technology of the enlightenment and stuff like that. Well, like now look at like newspapers today, right? <laughs> Their purpose like is not to, is not truth seeking anymore. Obviously it is funny how that, that kind of Silicon Valley age of, of like big capitalists, they're legitimizing equivalent 
to what the Carnegies and Fricks and people like that did is, I suppose, NGO stuff, right? Like it's, we're going to like have Wi-Fi in every village in the world kind of thing. You know, that that's their equivalent or like, you know, like I think if you think back to like the Arab Spring and stuff like that, their idea was that like the internet will bring freedom to the mm-hmm. to the world, basically. The the villages who don't yet have Wi-Fi, um, the techno capitalist class does not need their consent. Like they they needed to have brought high speed uh, internet to people who are in rural zones of red states. Yeah, like that's yeah, yeah. that's what the consent uh, that was never collected should have been. Um, yeah, right. But you know because that that is their like legitimizing thing, right? Um, they they want to be seen as moral and they want to be seen as doing something good for society too. But obviously, I mean, what people like um, freaking Carnegie did was something much better. I would much rather the museums and the libraries to what like Mark Zuckerberg is doing. But nonetheless, like as a function, you can see it works the same way. It, it gives the moral legitimacy to be like if you look at I, I find the most instructive thing is to look at Wired magazine from the 90s. And you really see the 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 ideology laid out most plainly there, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the never-ending so, boom. I was looking yes, at that exactly. cover. Yeah, yeah, the one world, like, and and sort of the this like global humanity and the mixture of like um technology with the spirit of the '60s and like all this kind of stuff. That is basically the vision, and that is the moral legitimacy. But then it is interesting too to see that that moral legitimacy itself is kind of falling apart a little bit. Like if you think of Afghanistan as an example, you know, like that idea of like, we're going to all, we're going to make them all feminists and engineer society to be progressive and to be open and, and all those things. And that sort of is a big blow to that worldview, you know? Yeah, that's that's the thing because I feel like um, I feel like a crazy person for for saying this or thinking this now. But I mean, my understanding was that those freedoms grow out of a necessary basis of material freedom, and it seems like people are being materially immiserated while offering they are being offered like all other sorts of um, identity based freedoms. But uh, you don't really get one without the other. It's like trying to build a house on sand. And I don't understand how someone can, how their identity can flourish if they don't have a roof over their heads. Mm. Uh, so it seems to be moving kind of backwards to to push the culture war onto people who are, in some cases, living uh, a peasant subsistence lifestyle. Yeah. Um, I guess what is the, how do, how do you account for that type of miscalculation that um, you would force the, these freedoms onto people uh, and not provide the material foundation for anything it's, else? It's a classic case of hubris, you know. Um, it's just they're too, they're too wealthy and like no one's telling them no. Exactly. Yeah. yeah the yeah, reality yeah. has to tell them no. Yeah. Like if you're one of these people, you know, you just imagine that you can just go around the world, like reshaping everyone in your own image. They have this crazy belief that technology in the stupid sense of just giving people cell phones is going to, you know, there's one idea that uh, was very influential in the Irish context, which is this idea. And it was very much part of the ideology in the nineties, the kind of tech utopianism, which was all about leapfrogging 
where like people don't need to go through the industrializing phase. They can just go straight from like a totally pre-modern, like tribal existence to being like someone in California, like, or, you know, like yeah. in Silicon Valley, you know, that they basically, and, and that's, that's such a strange view of technology, you know, like of the role of technology in these things. But yeah, it was like this idea that basically if you just have access to the internet, then you will suddenly become like, you know, a freedom loving. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It really is just like neocon foreign policy, like with kind of buzzwords, you know, because it is like spreading freedom to the world. But that that's what's so funny in that, like what giving everyone a cell phone did is that it birthed this totally like insane um feverish, uh, pornography addicted, uh, extreme mm -hmm. conservatism. So you get mm -hmm. like paleocons wearing a schoolgirl dress and yeah. like it didn't, yeah. it didn't fulfill the California ideology. Like, um, <laughs> so you have like just this bundled together knot of, uh, yeah, like incoherent, uh, reaction that I feel like if you had just maintained like, okay, there's a requisite amount of industrialization and middle-class jobs that, can't be sold off or the country starts to implode. Yeah. Then you would have done much better in achieving the second half of the plan. But I yeah. guess maybe um, you can't do that if you're trying to leapfrog. Yeah. 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 And, and the equivalent, I mean, in, in, so you can do the leapfrogging thing in a place like Ireland in the nineties to some extent. I mean, it's not like we were completely like non-industrialized. We did have industries and stuff, but, you know, you know, a not fully developed economy to, to a post-industrial economy. But in the American context, what they did was basically just got rid of like so much of the productive capacities, you know, and then thought that by through like tech and finance, they could sort of make up for all of this. But you said earlier about like the influence that China will have on remaking America itself. I think that's true. I, I think that um I think that they are actually going to rethink all of that. I think that there's a good chance you will see a lot of the stuff that Trump proposed actually come to pass. Reshoring industry. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because they have to, because the thing is you can probably, you, you might be able to sustain that crazy model where, where you kind of like remove the industrial base and keep all the rest of like the service sector and tech and finance and these things. You could probably do that if you're a completely unchallenged world superpower. Okay. Because then you just, people have to buy your stuff and, and you can just print money basically, you know, but if you are challenged on the world stage, that all changes, you know, um, because why would somebody trade with you when you have all of these strings attached when they could trade with China with no strings attached, you know, meaning like, you know, if you become very entangled with the American economy, you, you have to change culturally as well, you know, because there are these, because the heads of like, of capital, the, the, the most senior and the most powerful people among the capitalist class you know, think that they're like visionaries, right? And they have this desire to remake the world and stuff like that. So you're saying that you would, uh, in order to trade with the U.S., you would have to undergo some type of cultural liberalization mm -hmm. um, and that this would be pushed back against by the uh, indigenous population. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like uh, uh, American soft power is already waning because the biggest yeah. American box office films are having to 
cater to the Chinese market. So we can we can see the um, uh, yeah. the beginning of that. Um, let me let me steer us back into. I don't want to lose track of this. We're talking about uh, a trend line that may break or something that may crash. That there's going to be an interruption to this pattern we're trying to build out. And I think both of us are detecting similar trends, and we're trying to see where these things line up. One of the ways that I've described Patreon, and maybe this will uh, be mappable onto your experience with Substack, is that these things are a temporary life raft. Hmm. And the establishment, the institutions, legacy media, um, (laughs) maybe America as a world power, is the Titanic heading towards the iceberg. Hmm. And there's a certain amount of length where you can steer out of that collision. Hmm. Um, So I feel like I'm in the life raft and I'm shouting at the top of my lungs for someone to turn the wheel, but Hmm. I don't yet know if they're going to do it. And uh, the question is like, how much runway do we have before the thing crashes? Is this going to happen within the next 10 years? Is it the next 15, the next 20? What is the, what is the timeline? If we're already seeing it start to fracture, when does it fall apart? I, I have a feeling it's very soon. And, you know, it might not just be about falling apart. It might just be a change, like a huge change, you know, so essentially a kind of regime change <laughs> happens, like, you know, where the, somebody comes along and, and really, really profoundly changes everything. Something like that could happen. And maybe somebody has like a brilliant master plan to to revive the whole project. I don't know. But, but it is interesting that that the, the ideology of that, the big uh, tech guys, is uh, losing its legitimacy on the world stage at the same time that this stuff is happening with America, at the same time that you have all of these like features of, of periods of turmoil, which is like very high economic inequality plus major uh, elite overproduction and stuff like that. I think Turchin is correct about that theory. I think it's it's plausible. And so maybe something like that, it it won't be necessarily a crash. It will just be a very big change, a change on the scale of FDR or or something like that. That's what Um, I was going to ask. Do do you think that a a jobs creation, like a new deal, would be a sufficient or is it too late for that? I don't know. I think it could be. You know, countries have emerged from, you know, uh, depending on on the crisis, like sometimes a crisis can actually be the the like catalyst for, you know, a, a huge revival that is even greater than than what came before. So so I really don't know. But uh, so I wouldn't really be sure as to whether it's going to be something like that, or whether I mean one possibility is that you will have just uncontrollable turmoil within the country, like like even something like secessionist movements and things like that, like that could definitely happen. Um, and that will be very, very hard for, for the government to control because it involves basically a military conflict with, with its own people kind of, you know? So anything like that could happen. I don't know, but I do think that some kind of big break is inevitable. And it could yeah. be a good, it, it could be something good, you know, like, I mean, I think in, in the past, like just to use the FDR example, America has often been clever about sort of taking in just enough of its rivals strong points, you know what I mean? And sort of imitating them and then adapting them that they could do that again. You know, I mean, they could look at China and actually take 
like some of the successful things that they're doing in into the American system. A very uh, kind of a visionary leader could do that. But I do think that that unfortunately, I don't see really a way around the fact that like our generation might be a little bit of a lost cause in the sense that we've just believed in something that was never really going to happen, you know, and it was part of the Silicon Valley vision, which was that a huge portion of the population could live like cosmopolitan elites. And and that's not possible, you know. So for example, you might envision yourself like living in Paris or, you know, Berlin or one of these places and like, you know, having a totally self-sustaining like career and all these kinds of things. Like this is like the, the dream that was kind of sold to people. But of course, everyone else has the same idea at the same time. So you end up just like competing in these oversubscribed fields for 15 years or something you haven't got any further. And that's kind of more or less what happens. And that's not really, that was never going to be possible. So unfortunately, a lot of our generation are just going to be very disappointed. Like, you know, unless they find some way of, unless they find some way of like reimagining that, you know, or like, I don't know, changing their values in some. Well, let, here, let, let me throw this at you. Cause I feel like there's, um, there's two parallel things. Uh, and these are, these are definitely connected. You're talking about how the American regime used to take in uh, dissidents from all around the world, basically, mm-hmm. right? And this had, one, the benefit of getting multiple perspectives and interrogating the discourse from all the different sides. It also had, uh, in their, I think, correct calculations, when you bring in the dissidents from other regimes, it emboldens yours and that they say, like, oh, look, this is so successful over here. We have such freedoms and we can have conversations, mm-hmm. et cetera. There's a similar thing in uh, institutions, specifically in art, where uh, the classic examples, my field that I came from originally is photography that gets introduced during the modernist period, but was uh, previously not considered a high art, would not be part of the institutions. Uh, And then there's numerous examples after that, where you get things like um, one of the later versions is digital art. But I think of this as like scene uptake, that there's things that blossom around the the mainstream of the institution around the mainstream of discourse and periodically need to be recuperated into the institution that is part of functioning institutions is like slowly picking up dissident voices that have something to say and Mm. um, building them into the the conversation what has started to happen that scene uptake started to get slower and slower and ultimately just completely break down if given that type of a platform, does that interest you to insert your dissident perspective into the mainstream again, or do you want to just totally do away with it? I'm kind of ha- I, I'm I'm quite happy being outside of it right now, but I, I to some extent feel like I'm sort of taking a break from it, you know, like and I'm enjoying not having the pressure of being part of it. Rob Henderson, I, I saw it recently on his uh, website, he wrote this thing about how he, he was writing about like the difference between people who leave, not just institutions, but even countries and, you know, all kinds of uh, social bodies when they become difficult and those who stay and try to reform them. And I think someone that he was quoting was making the point that like, or maybe it was him was making the point that like, America is sort of a country of leavers, you know, 
<laughs> because everyone ended up there because they they couldn't stand like they had to leave the country they were in. They decided it, it was better to leave than to to stay and try to change it. So, you know, and even like today, people will leave from one state to the other and will leave. And so he was kind of looking into like why is it that some people will stay in an institution and try to change it for years and years, even if it's really, really difficult. But I do think that there is a place for that too, you know, like, um, because we don't know where this is going. Yeah, it's it's funny now. Uh, I realize this is maybe not exactly relevant to your experience, but maybe it's, maybe it's insightful. Uh, I did a podcast, choose your own adventure type of artwork. This is mm-hmm. not just a recorded like conversation the way that we're having. This was scripted, written, performed with music and uh, kind of like a audio play, something like that. This was part of a online exhibition organized by uh, a really wonderful uh, museum in Germany. I love the show. I love the curator. It's great. Um, it's the worst performing podcast I've ever done, period. And <laughs> that I expected, um, okay, so we'll kind of, we'll botch the rollout. Like we're not going to post it at the peak hours to get like all the traffic and whatever, because this museum is going to send an enormous amount of views to the podcast. I don't need to worry about that. And instead, it's actually, it's the other way around. So like the adjunctification of higher education, the uh, market disintermediation from institutions to platforms, like I can actually put a number on it now in that it costs me X thousand listens to the podcast. That gets also much easier when the pay rates for working in the university or working with the museum are maybe not declining, but just in a plateau, which will shed talent to uh, seek more lucrative opportunities and and whatnot. Um, I had this really this really pushed me over the edge of like try. <laughs> I'm going to try not to use the person's name, but um, I went to this museum show a few weeks ago. And I saw an artist there who I had admired and modeled a large portion of my career after trying to emulate his success. And he is here asking me about Patreon. And he's like, oh, yeah, you guys found a way out. Mm. That he's at the height of institutional success and he's kind of trapped in this thing also uh, yeah. uh, and envious of the the freedoms for the platform. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I still I still have all of my my hesitations of like what these platforms incentivize is basically like race to the bottom pornography and clickbait and like yeah. really bad, um, you know, not meaningful content. But uh, yeah, it just simply may be that there's no other choice for the for the time being. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and, and yeah, I think you just have to follow it and just see where it goes, you know. Um, but it is always that trade-off. If you publish something with a like a real publication, we'll say people you you'll get more backlash, but people will talk about it more for better or worse. I suppose because that is a space for which all these people are competing. Hmm. There, there's that like added tension to it, and I suppose they feel it's like a little bit of an official stamp of approval on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, trying to play both at the moment. I'm not sure how yeah. long I can, like, balance on that tightrope, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely worth trying. Um, but I, for, for right now, I mean, given how bad things are, um, I think that leaving is a good idea if you can do it. You know, because if you are part of the institutions, at this point, they have become so difficult to be in. And as you say, even the really senior people that you're like, you wish you could be in their position. They're actually pretty miserable in their position. 
people in academia who got in at an earlier time when the competition was not so extreme and they they got more career stability and stuff like that. Most of those people spend all of their time doing administrative work. You know, even some of like the really, really good scholars who the whole point of a university, well, not the whole point, but like one of its main functions was almost like, um, I think like the Church of England used to have sort of something similar with vicars, you know, like it's just to give them time. You know, you just put them in a room and give them time to work on something uninterrupted. Right. And now what we're doing is just making them do piles and piles and piles of administrative work <laughs> so that they don't end up really writing anything meaningful. I mean, we know all this, the, this whole bizarre system. I Honestly, if the public knew, it, it's so boring that people just probably would tune out so they'll never find out. <laughs> but if the public knew how crazy the academic system was, I mean, they would just want it to be completely abolished. And and it's amazing the the fall in standards, you know. I mean, you always sound like a real old fogey when you say that, but it is true, you know. Uh, and this is this is part of the reason we're, the the institutions were built to nurture original thinkers and creative thinkers and scholars and things like that, and to give them the time and space to do that. Now that, that it effectively doesn't exist, I mean, they may as well not even be there at all. That's the so this this is kind of the funny thing. I was um. You and I um, both maybe share portions of like anti-elite rhetoric, but mm. you're uh, an intellectual, I'm an artist. Those mm. are both jobs that um, are very much like part of the elites, but for mm. whatever reason, I guess different reasons we've been uh, excluded from them. I do share I do share your criticism that like the level of discourse has, I think, catastrophically fallen to a degree that I wonder if it could ever be recovered. Uh, on, on the stream, one of the things we've done uh, is go back to some of the like classic debates. We were watching William F. Buckley versus Michael Harrington in 1967. Mm. Uh, and it's like 50 minutes of uninterrupted discussion. And it was just so much more in depth and better. It's It's impossible to imagine that this was part of like just television that this was available to the public. Um, yeah. yeah. And now people are like, well, if, if the trailer is, you know, beyond 20 seconds, no one's going to watch it. Yeah. It's like, yeah. really, really? <laughs> um, so I wonder if maybe it's not like, maybe I'm not really anti-elite, but we just yeah. need better elites. There is this synthesis of, although it's very rare, but it's like a, a good, healthy elitism um, that is actually like uh, necessary because we don't want let's say we just completely liquidate all of the institutions and now we're navigating public discourse through the platforms and we have Logan Paul and Alex Jones in debate. And that's mm. like the extent of what we can get in 2021. Whereas, you know, we had Buckley and Harrington in 67. Like yeah. that is, that's a measurable decline. Like these people yeah. are much stupider. The conversation is way worse. Like yeah. how do we get back to 67? Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It's like not a fair question to ask. No, I know. No, that is true. I mean, in, in a funny way, like I am an elitist in some sense, but that's only because I think if you're an elite, you should earn your place there. You know what I mean? You should be like somebody who is like, you know, ha has something to offer to society, I guess. Many of these people did, you know, and um, yeah, and I don't know. It's really hard to imagine getting back. I mean, the thing, first of all, the institutions that nurtured people 
would have to be restored to their former function because that then influences the whole of the rest of society. Are those uh, state institutions or educational or? Educational, Mm. yeah. Um, Because, you know, because, for example, like a lot of the decisions that are made about education like for younger people are actually those decisions are made and those like ideas are thought up higher up in academia. You know, I, I just think that the whole standard of, of writing and of speech and of scholarship and all these things has to be kept as high as possible. And the rest of society will be kind of lifted up with it to a large degree, you know, uh, because you will be tested uh, much more from a young age to kind of reach these higher standards. Um, now, the other, there is the other thing of like the internet, you know, I mean, if, if you are just not even really, a, if, if you are not being exposed to having to follow a sustained argument over like several hundred pages, you know, if that's like an alien experience to you, that is going to change actually your brain, that's going to change like your thought patterns, and the kind of thoughts that you're capable of having, you know, so all of that matters. And like, and I don't know what to do about that, you know, because I mean, China has the answer, right? Which is just ban, <laughs> ban things that that, uh, that have this negative effect on society. But I mean, we may just have too much of a liberal sensibility to ever accept that, you know. So I really don't know. It's it's the bit. I think it's like the the biggest question there is. Like it's the most interesting question. Um, how could we recover those things? The problem is, of course, that you can't even get to step one of really honestly and meaningfully discussing how to recover them because in the public arena, like we can do it on, on like independent podcasts and things, but you know, um, if you're still within the big institutions and so on, you know, the answer to that is just going to be total dogma. Right. Um, Right. and, And so you can't even get to step one there. So I do think that, uh, the fact that we are in such a period of this strange kind of moral fanaticism makes it extremely difficult. And I don't think any of it is positive. So I don't see anything good coming out of that. I mean, I think sometimes of like the monastery system, right? Like, so in Ireland, um, you know, monasteries were set up and they had their own internal sort of economy in the sense that members of the monastery like farmed the food that the people ate that the monks ate and they often like produced something like a you know like a wine or something like that that they actually were able to sustain themselves and you know they engaged in in quiet scholarship they kept kind of that their libraries and the kind of memory of these things over over a long period where those values and that kind of scholarship were not to be found anywhere else in in the society so you know that so that's an example of an institution that exists just to kind of hold on to a precious thing that has been forgotten it's an arc yeah yeah i th- i think about that I think about that a lot recently in relation to artworks mm. and and preserving them where there's not institutional interest although obviously the work is the work is important um maybe that's maybe that's part of it and that there is in uh reestablishing useful or qualified elites there's a necessary amount of transparency that has to happen and that what they're saying has to be put to the test uh and if it's unchallenged then we can't really know if it's true. And the platforms offer an opportunity to do that, despite all of their 
terrible incentives and all the bad things that come along with it. But uh, it's not clear that there's another option at the moment. So that's that's kind of what's what's happening anyway. I think also it's like this balance between, you know, you want competing ideas, but you also don't want completely cutthroat competition either. Because once you do that, for example, I think one of the reasons that nobody is really truthful now is that the only way to survive in the current climate is to join a kind of political tribe. Because then if you're part of a political tribe, then you have the protection of that group. Are those Whereas, media channels or are they circles on Twitter? Yeah, well, like, or? Yeah, like say Twitter, for example. Like sure. if you join a political team, then you, you kind of band together with your group and you fight the other side together, right? But if you just decide, I'm just a truth seeker and I'm going to go out there and just be, be, be brutally honest about, you know, so, so that you end up kind of criticizing and, and agreeing with parts of lots of different political factions, but they don't see you as an ally because you're not always agreeing with them, then you're completely screwed because you've got no allies whatsoever. And when you find yourself under attack, you you don't have any group of people to support you. So I think that people are joining these kind of political factions or tribes or whatever you want to call them because it does offer you that level of protection. The problem is that once you join you then have to agree with the other people in the group. So here's a here's a, an example of you're asking about like how these platforms that offer independence could go wrong. I mean that's an example of it, right? Because if you build up an audience on the basis of being part of a political tribe and then you disagree with them on something, then you're you become a hate figure to your entire audience. <laughs> they turn you against know? you, yeah. Then because they have no institutional support and they are entirely reliant on a particular audience that got behind them maybe over a particular issue, then they will lose that audience and that audience will turn on them. I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do, I'm thinking about that a lot because um, I think that at, at a certain point, I kind of developed an audience that were people who were on the socialist left who were skeptical of identity politics or something like that. That would have been sort of the audience that I attracted. And I remember one time having a discussion which was about identity politics. And I, I felt very aware that I was brought there to say to be the identity politics is bad person, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> Familiar, and so, yeah. Yeah. And so just out of out of um bad mindedness, I just decided to go against my own position, you know. And but my but I was trying to make a bigger point, which was more that you know, lots of things are technically identity politics that also have a universalist element to them as well. So, for example, civil rights movements, civil rights are like the ultimate in universalism, right? Because they're expanding rights to to all. But the method of their organization, it, it can be identitarian. Um, and so that's the point I was making. But I could tell everyone was really pissed off at me for saying, for not saying what they had come there to hear, you know. Um, but I've always done that a little bit. And it might be bad mindedness, but it's also because I don't want to end up in a situation where I'm there doing a routine and my audience is entirely people who just want that point to be mm-hmm. made over and over again, you know. So I'm I'm kind of trying to cultivate an audience who are, who are in the same situation as me, which is that lots of certainties have fallen apart, lots of naive um, political aspirations have fallen apart, and lots of projects that, 
you know, you thought were going somewhere have not and have ended up in a really strange place that you didn't expect. And so now they're kind of at a point where they're like, I don't want like gurus anymore. Like I don't want like people who are going to just like repeat back this kind of like inspiring, but ultimately just not true, you know, sloganeering and so on. Uh, and and there are a lot of people like that in my audience, and it's great actually. That's the thing I enjoy the most because I don't sense that they're. I, I think they're kind of like a little like me, like a little lost at the moment. You know what I mean? They're not. Mm-hmm. They're not there to hear propaganda that will make them feel good. Can I ask you about the word socialist? Do you have, I guess, in your explorations, do you have a label that you like to use now? Yeah, it's a tough one because in in my in 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 the total like abstraction of my own mind, I'm still just a socialist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really foresee the extent to which uh, you know. I suppose it's like you have to distinguish between the actually existing world and the theory, you know. And very often, you know, even if you look at the history of like um, of of different experiments that have that have claimed to be inspired by Marx that spans the whole that that's like a million different things right so it can be like everything from like Cuba to the Khmer Rouge to like North Korea to (laughs) to 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 East Germany you know what I mean these are like completely different things that have almost nothing in common with each other and so I do think to like one thing I'm thinking about a lot recently is the extent to which I'm uncertain how much those kind of political labels actually mean, you know, like I, I don't really know. And yet at the same time, they do capture the imagination. So they have power of some kind, otherwise people wouldn't be employing them. But um Sometimes it's interesting because when I listen to younger people have political discussions online now, I'm very aware of how, especially young men, I'm very aware of how obsessed with like political categories they are. Yes. Like obsessed, you know, and they will have like arguments that go on for months and months about or forever really about whether this person or this party or this nation state or whatever it might be belongs in this category or this category you know like if for some reason it matters enormously to them and I'm just not sure how much it does matter like I don't think that that's really the driving force of things you know um like there are countries for example that have like a that that, that have like a center-left social democrat like party in government most of the time right they're like the, the the dominant party and they're just like a democratic country that are way more socialized, their economy is way more socialized than than the 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 kind of ideological categories would suggest, you know. So, so I don't know, but uh, I I I still kind of do use it as, as as the closest approximation of what I think and what I believe now. Um, I'm just not very very dogmatic about exactly what it means because I think like. It has a lot to do with like a lot of historical circumstances, you know, and the particular circumstances that different places find themselves in at different times in history when an opportunity comes along to have some kind of a major 
uh, economic revolution or, or something like very, you know, broad and sweeping. Um, so yeah, I, I, I use it, but I'm, I'm aware that unfortunately, after all that's happened over the last couple of years, I, I don't think it's a word that is going to be taken up in a popular way again for a while. Hmm. Hmm. You know? Yeah, there was maybe an opportunity a few years ago. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think, uh, I mean, one of the things that I think we're both aligned on here is that there are clearly some necessary changes that have to happen, are going to happen one way or another. And that includes like stop privatizing everything, uh, mm -hmm. start doing more planning. Um, mm -hmm. And in different places under different historical conditions, those are going to go by different names. Mm. Um, and so what I'm most interested in is moving people between belief systems and facilitating uh, a level of state spending of um, reversing the tide of neoliberalism, specifically in the in the US, because I'm very selfish that way. Uh, <laughs> but whether that goes by the name of like Marxist or social Democrats or mm. um, Keynesian or mm. and all sorts of things, the plan is very clear. The plan yeah. for what needs to happen is really clear. 